This morning, we come to a text. Returning to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3 now, and we come to a text that basically gives us an ongoing list of sins. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. And as I've done previously for the sake of both content and context, and, and just repetition of that, I want to read the first 17 verses of the chapter. Um, and I want to bring to you a message that I've called the death of self. And so those of you who are able to stand for that length of time, I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. In his book on sin and temptation, John Owen writes, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I appreciate these words because by them, John Owen reminds every believer of the need to be intentional and have decisive action in a believer's life against sin. He conveys a notion that conquering sin in our lives is not merely a passive endeavor, but it is one that requires action. To summarize the words of J.C. Ryle, to live the Christian life, the Christian must fight for holiness. When it comes to dealing with sin, we often have two problems that entrench us even further in that sin. And rather than er eradicate our relationship, we just go deeper into sin. The first is we soften our language towards sin. 
A child is no longer a child, but a fetus. Narcissism is now retooled as self-esteem, and anger is simply called passion. Simply by rewording and using different words, sin is minimized. It's masked as something that is really not as unholy as we think it is. And so sin becomes not merely tolerated, but it becomes accepted. Not only do we soften our language towards sin, but we tend to soften our understanding of sin. Rather than knowing what sin is, we simply brush it off as something that everyone has to contend with. In that matter, we really don't fully grasp what sin is then. We don't understand the severity of sin, what it is and the drastic, deplorable impact it has both in our lives and the lives of others. It's easy to disregard what we don't know. And I'll give you an example. We see this in relationships all the time. We fail to feel pity towards someone or have compassion when someone is experiencing severe trials simply because we don't know them. In the same way, if we don't take the time to know someone, it's easy to dislike or even hate that person. But spending time in prayer for them, understanding that individual, tends to generate a level of compassion and love for them. In the same way, then, it is easy to disregard sin when we don't understand or know what sin is. And so as we enter our text this morning, we see that Paul uses language that plainly describes what sin is. In fact, he labels it. He doesn't soften his language. He doesn't soften his understanding of it. But rather, he uses explicit language to convey the depth of human depravity. And this call is to put sin to death. And so with this call, it is my desire that we would take a few moments to understand the significance of Paul's words so that we may understand the severity of our sin. May we thoroughly examine the text of Colossians so that we may thoroughly detest sin, so abhorred by it that we are willing to indeed put it to death. And so I want you to note first the call of the Christ. Our text this morning begins in verse 5 with the phrase, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And in verse 9, it ends in a similar saying, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. With these words penned by Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ issues a call on every person who has confessed him as Lord to put away all things that are in contrary to that lordship. By nature, the word of God declares here, in light of who you already are, become that person. Such a call is not consummated by rules of legalism and moralism. Paul has already addressed this in a previous chapter. While he's refuting the false teachers and that are influencing the church, those false teachers are burdening the church by implementing rules such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch in chapter 2, verse 21. These rules are simply a futile attempt to protect against sin. But they can't do that because rules don't address the root of the problem. They don't touch the heart of a person. 
something that I was looking forward to when we moved away was the opportunity to plant a lemon tree and have our own because I love lemons. So one of the first things we did when we moved into our new home away is we did purchase a tree and planted it. What I didn't know at the time is we had a huge ant problem. I did all I could do to protect that tree. At one point, I, I wrapped the base of it with a cloth and soaked it with poison on a regular basis. And then I would trim the tree so it wasn't connecting to anything else so that the ants couldn't get on it. But nothing I did was ever enough. I could never get to the heart of the problem, the source or the root, the source of the ants. I even had poison that I could drop on the ground, and usually the ants would drop whatever they're carrying in order to carry that back to their source, to their home. The problem was these ants were tiny, and so the poison I had, even crushed up, was too big and too heavy for them to carry. And so because I could never get to the source of the problem, in five years, we never grew any lemons from that tree. This is how it is with sin. Rules only seek to limit the effect of sin. It's only when we address the heart, though, can we eradicate sin. Colossians 3, 5 through 9 is not a call to implement rules to mitigate sin. It's called to institute a lifestyle to annihilate it. As part of their regulation, the, the moralist of Paul's day often listed corruption in two groups, and usually two groups of five at that. They would list first just an obvious list of things that were wrong. And then later on, the second list would be something that was perhaps not as obvious. The Apostle Paul follows that same format here, listing two groups of five of things that are wrong. And we begin in verse five with what is the most obvious of sins, those that are primarily sexual in nature. Few people would disagree that sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness are sinful in nature. Throughout his epistles, Paul rarely ignores sexual sins. They're often the most predominant feature of Paul's admonitions. And they're pointing to the fact that, indeed, this was a common problem both inside the church and outside of the church during his day. That trend continues today. Sexual sins comprise most of the activities responsible for corrupting the people of the church. And yet, despite our awareness of the problem it creates, it is one of the least addressed problems. Perhaps this is because we don't fully understand the significance of it. Look at the text again and notice the words. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Most readers already have a basic understanding of the significance of these words. And so it's easy for us to quickly look them over and say, that's not me. But I want to take some time to consider each one of these words. Not so that it can become burdensome and we can just list what sin is, but because I want us to understand truly the significance of what these are. And we begin with sexual immorality. Or as some of your translations may say, it's fornication. Of Paul's five lists of sins like this, three of them begin in this way, with this very same word. It is a word comprised of two verbs in the Greek text to really mean the idea of one sell, selling oneself or one's body, like that of a prostitute. It is the same word that James uses in James chapter 2 to describe Rahab. 
We'll see it again in, in Revelation 17. The reality is few people have experienced this kind of sexual immorality. And so it's easy to ignore it. But so that we don't consider ourselves better than any prostitute, the next word expands our understanding. It simply says impurity. While the first term is very specific, impacting only a few, this is a general term, and it leaves no person untouched, meaning sexual impurity of any form. Most notably, the, the original context, the original word, draws attention to one's thought life. The word here for impurity conveys one whose mind is filled with suggestive thoughts and unwholesome situations. These are the thoughts that we would be embarrassed to have if somebody could read our minds. Previously, Paul issued a charge, one that we talked about two weeks ago, when he says, set your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To have a mind on Christ is to follow Christ. To have a mind on these filthy things is to follow these things. We need to only go to James chapter 3 and see the process of sin to understand that. This word serves as a warning for living in our modern culture. A culture that seeks to infiltrate our minds by placing sensuality before us everywhere we go. On TV, in books, even on billboards. So that no one is, can remain untouched by it. We even have to watch our children today and what they see in public. It reminds us of the need to guard our minds so that we may guard our life. Often it's said, has the internet ruined you? Because the internet has turned everything into some sort of sexual innuendo and joke. That tells us the depths of this sin. In light of what the mind is dwelling upon, the next correct corruption here shouldn't be a surprise. Passion. Or again, as some of your translations may use, the word lust. Jesus forbids this in the Sermon on the Mount, proclaiming that lust is simply another form of adultery. It is severe because it's more than thinking impure thoughts about someone. It's indicative of depraved passion. The one who lusts is the one who is desirous of another, simply for self-gratification. and never considers the impact on the other person. Indeed, as the next two words in our text say, it is wicked and evil desire. Hence the inclusion in our description. And that leaves us with this last sin, covetousness. Quite literally just means to want more. But in our list here in the context, this stands out because it seems like it has nothing to do with the rest of these sins. But really, the idea of coveting finds itself embedded into each one of these individual sins. Because in each one, it simply means wanting more in that regard. As an example, consider adultery and the significance. It gives the indication that the person committing the sin wants more than he or she has. That person's not content with what they've been given. With that attitude in mind, it should be no surprise that all of these are called idolatry because it gives the indication that the person committing the sin simply wants more than what he or she has and has replaced this desire or taken this desire and, and 
focused on that, elevating the importance of focusing on what one has to focusing on what one wants. Not made apparent in our text is that this word covetousness also denotes a lack of care for someone else. Much like the one who lusts, as we just saw, the person who covets in this text is willing to deprive someone else of what they may need, even to the point of injuring them for the sake of personal fulfillment. Looking upon this list, there are few few that would disagree, few people who would disagree that this is indeed immorality and indecency. The method for managing sin can't be, though, just simply listing out these sins. It cannot be a list of rules or a list of regulations. Simply saying, do this but not do that, is not sufficient enough reason for somebody to give up a particular vice or a particular corruption. More than an attitude of legalism, this fails or that attitude fails to deal with the cause of the sin. And so instead, a person must understand the severity of it. The softening of, or the conquering of sin doesn't begin by the softening of our speech towards it. In fact, we should intensify our language towards it. Looking upon this list, what we should see then is not merely a list of sins, but we should see a list of attitudes behind those sins. We should see attitudes that provoke those sins. At the heart of each is a love of self over a love of God and a love of others. Looking upon the meaning of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, what stands out is the core belief that drives each of these sins. It's a hard attitude that people and things exist for one's own personal pleasure. That is to say that those perpetuating the sin do so for the advancement of their own pleasure. They are more concerned about what they receive over the damage they give. And so in this way, those sins are a product of a love of self over a love of God. And clearly the Lord has no patience for such a lifestyle, as evidenced by his treatment of it. But once again, it's not merely the participation in it, although as awful as that is, but it's the hard attitude behind it because it replaces one's relationship with Christ. Consider that in his charge against Babylon in Revelation 17. The greatest, most severe indictment that the Lord leverages against them is not a lack of adoration or a lack of devotion or a lack of exaltation or transformation. But in Revelation 17.5, he says it this way, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The greatest accusation made against Babylon is its sexual proclivity. More than representing its sin against man, this represents sin against God. Intimate human relationships are meant to be a picture of the church's relationship with God through Christ. One of complete fervor, one of complete fidelity, and one of complete faithfulness towards the one and only God. So to sin against somebody else is to sin against God. It is a behavior that points to the unfaithfulness towards God. 
Such a person has defected from God and offered himself or herself on the altar of the world for the sake of personal gratification. And ultimately, it is a behavior that points to idolatry in Colossians 3.5, as the text indicates. The person of this nature is not infatuated by God, but captivated by men. One's devotion to the creation then supersedes one's devotion to the creator. It demonstrates not a heart for God, but a heart against God. For this reason, Paul writes to the Ephesians in our text that we read this morning, For you may be sure that of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The Lord treats this seriously, not because that person has set himself against God's mandates, but because that person has set themselves against God. Remembering again, then, that the moralist of that day gave two lists, first being one, an obvious list, what we saw here of the sexual sins, but now in verse 8, he gives readers another list, one that's probably not quite as obvious. Paul writes, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Once again, we have a list of five sins, sins which make up this category of speech. And similar to the list of sexual activity sins, the severity of these vices really aren't marked by our English translation. We don't capture the intensity of what they are. We minimize each, categorizing them as simple and meaningless. But I want you to look very quickly at the meaning of each. And we begin by looking at this word anger. Interestingly enough, that word anger is the same word used in verse 6 to indicate God's wrath. But in contrast to God's wrath, man's anger is never justified, or in this context isn't justified. It conveys this inward attitude of hostility towards another whether it be a group or an individual. Context here indicates that the word signifies a constant state of infuriation and outrage. It doesn't matter who the person is or what they did. The other person has already settled their dislike on that individual. And so the relationship will always be one of turbulence because it is always characterized by anger from that individual. That person will never do anything right to appease the other, and so he or she will simply always be angry at them. Anger is to be differentiated from the next word in our text, which says wrath. Different than the word wrath in verse 6, obviously. This is an expression of uncontrolled rage. Anger is a constant state. Wrath here, though, is demonstrated to be an outburst of anger. D.A. Carson notes that anger speaks of the settled attitude, while wrath is passionate outburst. So one is continuous, the other one is just blowing up at strategic times. And then in our text, Paul escalates this by using the word malice or gossip. In one sense, malice simply means moral badness. But the idea conveyed here is enveloping a person of personal animosity towards a person, and they express that animosity by malicious gossip. Such behavior may even be the result of the anger and the wrath that we just talked about. 
what we do know is that it's a severe thing. We tend to treat gossip very lightly, but the uncontrolled talking of another not only does much damage, but it often does it more severely and oftentimes irreparably. This level of sin is captured well in Ephesians 4.31 when Paul links these concepts together. He writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. In linking these together, notice that in Ephesians 4.31, Paul adds another word there. Bitterness. Bitterness is often harbored internally, and it has the potential to reveal itself in an explosion of wrath and in ongoing anger and, of course, in malicious gossip. At the root cause is bitterness towards another. And if that description is insufficient in conveying the appalling nature of these sins, and the appalling nature of these atrocities, Paul goes further. And he calls believers to put away any slander. Elsewhere, this word is used to portray abusive speech, using one's tongue to intentionally cause harm to an individual. It is seen in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in which one's speech is used to injure somebody else. Such speech can be directed against God or man. Here is the important aspect of this word, though. It conveys blasphemy. When we look at this word for slander, the word used is the same one used for blasphemy. So how we use our words is indicative of not just what we think about people, but what we think about God. To speak ill of someone or, or, someone, or to desire to hurt someone with our words indicates that we really have no regard for God, by our willingness to speak against somebody made in the image of God. The issue with our speech is not merely what we're saying about the individual, but what we're saying about God when we speak against that individual. Notice the last one. Paul writes, put away obscene talk from your mouth. If out of the mouth flows a man's heart, then a foul mouth indicates a foul heart. Robert Gromacki stipulates that such low, obscene talk should produce shame both to the speaker and to the listener. In place of filthy talk, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.4, again, the text we read this morning, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The character of our speech is not merely a reflection of the character of one's heart, but more importantly, if Christ is part of our heart, it should be a reflection of Christ. Notice that Paul adds something specific, though, in verse 9. He tells the Colossians to not lie to one another. Lying is already included in these things we just talked about, yet Paul singles it out here. And then with that phrase, do not lie to one another, that indicates that in the Colossian church there was something specifically going on. We have no idea what was going on. We don't know what the lies were. We don't know what was going on. And so we, we would do well to not speculate. What is certain is that it's not a reflection of Christ. If Christ is the truth, then certainly lying 
is the anti-truth. Truth is often inconvenient, and yet there's a reason to set it apart here by Paul. Truth is necessary and vital to any healthy relationship. This is why it's written in Ephesians 4.15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Romans 10.9 tells us that with our mouths, that's when we first submit to the Lordship of Christ, confessing him both as Lord and Savior. We disparage the name of Christ when we confess him as Lord, and yet with the same mouth, slander and gossip about others. James writes of this in, in a well-known passage, James 3, 8 through 10, saying, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. In 1918, at the height of World War I, People were beginning to get uncomfortable with what was taking place. And in the United States, many of the citizens started to harass the German citizens. Not even citizens, but German immigrants who began to settle in the United States. Even those who had left their homeland long ago and became full citizens of the United States found themselves the recipients of these attacks. One in particular points to the horrid use of the tongue. And it captures well, really, the sins of speech that we see in our text. On April 5th, 1918, a man by the name of Robert Prager was accosted. Prager was born in Germany, but he immigrated to the United States, and upon immigrating, immediately applied to be a citizen. And then the next step he took was to apply to join the Navy, although they would reject him. So eventually he took up a job in a coal mine in southern Illinois, Arthur Herman recounts the story further and writes that as he was working, as, as Robert Prager was working, there began a rumor that was circulating that some German agents were going to blow up this mine, and they were going to do so when there were miners in it. And so several of the local German-Americans came under suspicion, and they were forced to publicly declare their loyalty and even kiss the American flag. Although he'd been in the country since 1905, so by this point, 13 years, Robert Prager became a target. And so after work on the evening of April 3rd, a group of drunken miners seized him, and they paraded him through the streets of the city. They denounced him as a German spy and told him to leave town. Prager would refuse. And... In fact, it made sense to refuse because he was not a spy. He'd been there for years. And so what he did is he posted around town copies of a statement of his loyalty, declaring him to be, himself to be an American. The next day, April 4th, those people then searched out Prager and stripped him down to his underwear. And then they marched him through town and barefoot, they draped him into an American flag and followed him through the streets. At the center of town, the mob demanded that he sing the Star-Spangled Banner. Prager admitted he didn't know the words. And so what he did was instead sang another patriotic song that he did know. And the crowd only jeered and, and grew uglier. 
At this point, the police had to intervene, and so they took him back to the jail and hid him in the basement, but the people simply followed along. They found him down below, removed him once again, extracted him out of the basement, and this angry crowd simply followed him again through town. They decided the next best thing was to tie him to a tree. And so in the evening, they circled their cars, and in the headlights of those automobiles, the few that they had at the time, they strung him to that tree. Then somebody made a rope, a noose, and they put it around his neck. And 15 men hoisted him. He kicked, he twisted, but he never died. So they lowered him back to the ground, not to release him, but to try again. Before they did so, this this man asked if he could be allowed to pray, and if he could write a goodbye letter to his parents. And then once again, he stated his loyalty to America. He pushed aside his captors and went right back to the tree and right back to the noose. And with 200 people looking on, he said, all right, boys, go ahead and kill me, but wrap me in the flag when you bury me. And so then they yanked the rope and indeed hung him and he died. The tongue destroys. It destroys relationships. It destroys lives. It can destroy the church. The severity of that picture should tell you the damage that can be done by the tongue. We can easily look at the sexual sins and see the damage there. Perhaps not so obvious is the damage from the sins of speech. It is this brutality that results from sin that necessitates the call of our text. Paul says, put to death anything that is inconsistent with belief in Christ. Our text in Colossians 3, 5 through 9 begins and ends with that same call. Put it to death. Put to death is to mortify. means to render something dead so that it is completely useless no longer having the capability to influence somebody's life. Remembering that those in Christ died with Christ in baptism in the previous chapter, Edward Loos writes, let the old man who has already died in baptism be dead. To be dead is not merely to get rid of a particular vice. It's to completely eradicate it. Max Anders summarizes this call by saying Paul is calling for complete extermination, not careful regulation. If you go back to Colossians 2.20, you'll see that the Colossians had a problem in that they rendered themselves alive to the world, not completely dead to it. Paul writes to them in that verse, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The issue with the Colossians is that they may have died with Christ, but they still lived as though they were alive to the world. Take this further by remembering who it is that Paul is writing to. The letter to the Colossians has gone to the local church. It's being addressed to a group of believers. The very fact that Paul has to write these things to a group of believers and what appear to be very staunch believers tells us the severity 
of this sin. It speaks to the depth of sin. To do away with sin, then, cannot be a matter of simple mental process in which it is considered dead. Oh, it's dead, it's done. No, this is a call to actively engage in getting rid of it. Consider the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Like the the runner in the race, a weight that clings closely means that a runner can't build up speed. In fact, quite the opposite happens. Each step becomes heavier and weightier so that most will not even finish the race. And if they do, they finish exhausted, famished, and ruined. Sin is a weight that holds us back. It causes us to sink and renders us depleted. How is it that one renders sin dead? By rendering the self dead. To put to death anything that is against the character of God means to put to death that part of ourselves which brings about spiritual defection and destitution. We just talked about it. The core value of all these sins was a love of self, and so it means we have to put self to death. It's imperative that the self be that which dies if sin is to be dead. In the cross, meaning by the death, burial, and resurrection, the cross ended any obligation we have to sin. The crucifixion of self renders sin ineffective in a person's life. This is not as extreme as it may seem, because the Lord never leaves people alone to deal with that burden. Consider the truth that we read way back in Colossians 1.13, back in October. It's written, he, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Living victorious over death, over the death of sin, is a matter of simply living in the life that God has already brought us to when he transferred us from one kingdom to the next. We must not confuse morality with being a Christian. A Christian is not defined by following a set of rules, but by following a lifestyle of holiness. And holy living is rarely convenient, especially in this world. It calls upon us to do the most difficult things at the most difficult time. Setting aside our wants and our desires at the most inconvenient of times and acting instead in the best interest of others and most importantly, in the best interest of Christ, not in the matter of self. Overcoming sin is not an easy task because it, it goes against our very nature, what is to preserve ourselves. But to diffuse sin in our lives, we must infuse Christ into our lives. And the death of self brings about the rise of Christ in our lives. And that will be the title and topic for next week. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed are grateful. As we look over this list, Lord Father, we we can easily be frustrated and aggravated, overwhelmed and burdened. And yet, Lord, in this call to put death to sin... 
We have an advocate. We have you. And by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, sin has been rendered useless, powerless. And so, Father, I pray that each day we would live in that, that we would live in Christ and not in ourselves, Lord. So, Father, may we dwell upon this text. May we be convicted by it, but at the same time, Lord, may it drive us closer to you and generate a deeper relationship. May it expose us completely to you. And may it render us your servants as a result. So we commit all of these things to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.